find our ways to John 5. I'll give you a moment to get there. Remember, uh, this is uh, in the context of uh, Jesus showing up at the temple during one of the feasts. We're not sure which feast it was. Uh, However, uh, he meets a paralytic there. He heals this man who had been crippled for 38 years. And then the fun begins because, of course, it's a Sabbath day. And Jesus has also told him to pick up his pallet and go home. And the man was caught doing work on the Sabbath. And so the uh, Jewish leaders have got involved in all of this. Uh, Last week, we kind of ended on the note where Jesus had declared that uh, he does what the Father does. The Father works, and so he works. And the Jewish leaders figured that out, that it meant that he made himself to be equal with God. And so they were pursuing him or persecuting him, not just for breaking the Sabbath by healing a man, but also for blasphemy. So that's kind of where we're at here in John chapter 5. Let's pick up at verse 19. So Jesus said to them, the Jewish leaders, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Father does not, sorry, does not honor the Son, does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He who does not comes into judgment, but has passed, sorry, he who does not, also does not come into judgment. I don't know where I inserted something else in there, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Most gracious God and our Heavenly Father, in whom alone dwells all fullness of light and wisdom, Illumine our minds, we beseech you, by your Holy Spirit. In the true understanding of your word, give us grace that we may receive it with reverence and humility unfeigned. May it lead us to put our whole trust in you alone, and so to serve and honor you 
that we may glorify your holy name and edify our neighbors by good example. And since it has pleased you to number us among your people, help us to give you love and homage as we owe, as children to our Father, as servants to our Lord. We ask this for the sake of our Master and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you're uh, my age or older, I'm sure you're very familiar with this. If you're younger, perhaps you have watched this on Nick at Night or uh, TV Land, but there is one of those shows with one of those catch lines that has endured through the ages, and it's this. What you talking about, Willis? You weren't expecting that one, were you? Okay. Different strokes. He would always say that when his brother said something that was unexpected. Jesus has just said something incredibly unexpected. And I can imagine something along those lines by the angry Jewish leaders. What are you talking about, Jesus? Let's get this straight. Did we hear you right? Jesus is about to explain, just as Willis had to explain, what he was talking about. They understood properly that Jesus had made himself out to be equal with the Father, but Jesus is going to clarify as to what that means so that we could have a better understanding of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son who walked upon the earth. This takes place in the context of a mini-trial, an impromptu sort of trial. They are examining Jesus. This is not a pleasant conversation that takes place, and we should keep that in mind as we move through it. The big idea this morning is that Jesus follows in his Father's footsteps to fulfill his, meaning the Father's, purposes. When Jesus is talking about his relationship with his heavenly Father. He wants us to understand that he follows in his Father's footsteps. That's very significant as we think about what he's going to say here. The first thing I want us to grapple with is that the Son follows the Father's lead. And as I kind of sat with this text and thought about it, and Thursday my deadlines are coming, and I'm trying to figure out what to do with this, and... I'm going to follow the pattern of the three truly trulys, or amen, amen, depending on which translation of the Bible you have. I'm going to follow those and allow them to structure kind of what I say. Now, what's interesting about that is that Jesus will at times go back. He'll circle back to something that was said in the first truly, truly, but he's not merely repeating. He's, he's emphasizing, but he's also adding to what he said previously. So keep this in mind. There's going to be a fair amount of repetition in Jesus' statements, and therefore there might be a little bit of repetition in mine. Not only is it, is it structured uh, grammatically around those, uh, those three truly trulys or amens, there's also four fours. Yeah, not the letter, but four. Meaning as a result of this or, or because of this. So there's, there's four of these logical connectors that I'm going to draw out in the text as we kind of work through what's going on here. So keep all of that in mind. And in terms of the first truly, truly, which of course means essentially pay attention. What Jesus is going to say is absolutely true. 
He's, he's using the amen two times, so be it, so be it, to emphasize that we need to listen, that this is important. That's what he's saying to them. But as we read it, so should we make sure that we pay attention because this is vital to understand what it is he has already said about being equal with the Father. And the first thing he does is he says that he can do nothing of his own accord. Meaning, he didn't come to do what he wanted to do. Jesus, while affirming the fact that he is by nature and by status equal with God, worthy to be worshipped, glorified and obeyed, he affirms his own submission and dependence upon his Father. In other words, he is not his own man. He's the Father's man. He is saying that I exist not to do my own thing, but I exist to do the will of Him who sent me. Just as you are meant to be under submission to proper authority, Jesus lived in submission to His Father. He's not a maverick. He's not a rebellious son. He's not like the sons of God that we read about in Greek mythology who end up oftentimes fighting against their fathers and bringing their father's shame and disgrace. In other words, Jesus keeps the fifth commandment. Honor your father and his earthly mother. <laughs> okay. He kept that. And children who are here, he can help you keep that too. Jesus shows you not just an example, but also gives power through the Holy Spirit that he might enable earthly children to obey their earthly parents, preparing them to obey their heavenly Father. So, let's keep that in mind as we think about what Jesus is saying here. We get the first four. Four. The son sees or discerns what the father does and does it too. And so Jesus watches his father. He pays attention to his father. And the things that he sees his father doing, he does them as well. Paul is here on an internship. Daniel is on the other side of the country on an internship. Part of what an internship is, besides, I don't, actually, I don't know. It's been a long time since I had one, and I didn't fetch anybody coffee. Hopefully, they're not just fetching coffee. But you're watching engineers at work, right? And you're, you're standing alongside of them, and you're learning to do what engineers do to begin to apply those things that you learned in college in a real lab to learn how to crunch those numbers or uh, you know whatever it is that you have been learning. And in Jesus' day, most people did an apprenticeship. That's a little more than an internship because you like, you like live there. And usually it was home, but sometimes you were sent away to do an apprenticeship at someone, uh, for someone else. But you usually walked in your father's footsteps vocationally. 
So that meant when the time when you were old enough, you would start to hang around with your dad, and you would start to see what he does, and he would increasingly give you more and more responsibility. And Jesus most likely did this with Joseph. He hung out with Joseph, and he learned to be a carpenter from Joseph. But Jesus here is not talking about Joseph. He's talking about his heavenly father. And in a sense, he wants that same idea of apprenticeship to kind of help us understand what's going on. He's watching and doing. He's engaging in the same things that he has seen his father doing, and if this, for the same reasons that his father has done them. He repeats this. It's in verse 20 as part of the four, the first four, but in verse 19 he, bring, he brought it up the first time. Emphasis. He really wants us to understand that he does what he does because he has watched the Father. He has not, he's not making this up as he goes along. He sees perhaps what they wish they could see. And what I wish we could see is their facial response. It's interesting that John leaves this out. He wants the focus to be completely upon what Jesus is saying. And, and so he doesn't have really how I might imagine these guys responding when Jesus says these things. The looks of frustration, confusion, rage, we're not even sure what all that might have come across their faces. But they're hearing something that is sublime, and they would have responded, but it's not about their response. It's about what Jesus says and the truthfulness of it. The second four arises here. For or because the Father loves the Son. And we might think of that as, well, obviously. <laughs> okay? The form of love we might expect to see here is agape, but that's not the form of love that is mentioned here. It's phileo. In other words, he's saying that the Father has affection for and approval of the Son. He doesn't just love him, so to speak. He likes him. I remember one day driving up uh, Route 27 in Florida, north of uh, Winter Haven, and there, unlike you guys, there were a couple of people in the congregation that drove me crazy. And I remember just, God calls me to love them. He doesn't call me to like them. I gotta love them. I have to be self-sacrificing in my service to them and making sure that I am doing things that will help them grow. Okay? But liking them's a different story. Okay? The Father not only loves the Son, He likes the Son. He approves of the Son. We see this at His baptism. John the Baptist records hearing the voice from heaven. He sees the, the, the Spirit coming down in the form of a dove, but he hears, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We see this at the Transfiguration. This is my beloved Son. 
in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The reason, Jesus says, that the Father shows him these things, it's not Jesus spying on his Father, you know, uh, secretly here. The Father shows him these things. And the reason Jesus says, the Father shows me these things, is that because he loves me. He approves of who Jesus is and has a warm affection for his Son. Now, we might start to wonder, how is it that Jesus could say, the Father loves the Son? Of course, the Father is supposed to love the Son. I think Calvin helps us to clarify this a little bit. He says, we, can, we shall immediately see that these statements do not simply and of themselves relate to the eternal word of God, but apply only to the Son of God so far as he is manifested in the flesh. And so these statements are particularly about Jesus, the incarnate one, the one who is fully God and fully man, that person that we, it's very mysterious to us. Now, of course, the, the councils of, the, of old have sort of, you know, worked to try and understand the nature of the relationship between the two natures of Jesus, and we're not going to go there today. But this is, I think, largely about Jesus as the enfleshed one. The one of whom Luke says in Luke 3 that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Okay? And so, Jesus, as a man even, had the love and affection and approval of the, his Father in heaven. And so because of this, as I said, he shows him all of these things. And Jesus says that even greater things will happen than the miracle that they're currently fighting about. The, the, the healing of the paralytic, nothing compared to what you will marvel at in the future. And what they should marvel at as he slowly unveils it for them right here in the text. For instance, there is the third four. Because the Father and the Son raise the dead. He uses the same verb as that he used to the paralytic. Rise. Get up, walk, take your bed and go home. The same verb there, rise. They give life to certain people. Now, we see in, in, in Scripture that it is the province of God and God alone to give life. For instance, Second Kings chapter 5, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with that text, uh, Naaman, who is a general of the the uh, Syrian army has leprosy and he finds out from his servant girl who's an Israelite that there is a, a prophet who can heal him and so he gets permission from his king to go and he goes to the king of Israel, Samaria and he brings this letter and the king of Samaria thinks he's really inviting a fight in 2 Kings 5 and when the king of Israel read the letter he tore his clothes how often do you read letters and tear your clothes? Okay, it's just, it's just a, shy, a sign of, 
of his emotional distress that was going on at reading this thing. But here's the significant thing. Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. And so he's thinking that, that really it's an invitation to a fight because he thinks he's not God, and he's not, and therefore he can't heal this man of leprosy. It's God's job, not the king of Israel's job. Uh, well, no one was asking the king of Israel to do this. They were actually looking for Elisha to take care of this. But it is God who makes the dead alive. We see here in John 5 that this is a present tense. It would seem to indicate that he's speaking about here the sovereign disposal of eternal life. That he's speaking here about the dead in sin and trespasses, and therefore he's speaking about regeneration. It is then as if that wasn't enough. <laughs> okay, I give life to people. He drops a bigger bomb. The Father judges no one because he has delegated it to the Son. Now, when he says the Father judges no one, their, their initial response might have been, no one gets judged. Nope. They will be judged, but not by the Father, but by the Son. They knew, as good Jews, that he, God was the judge of all of the earth. For instance, in Genesis 18, when you know Abraham meets the three guys, that he's not really sure who they are, but they're going to go and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and he starts to plead for Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fares the wicked. Far be that from you, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Abraham knew that God was the judge of all the earth. Every Jew would confess that. And what Jesus is saying here is that God judges through his Son. Paul would affirm this in Romans 2. He talks about on that day in the future... According to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. You, don't, you can't pit Paul and Jesus against each other. They're always in harmony. Implication of this bomb that just been dropped? The very one that they have been trying to judge is going to judge them. All of the people today who sit in judgment upon Jesus Christ will one day stand before Him for their judgment. Serious news. Something that we need to remember. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to wonder how things are true. But to sit in judgment is a different matter. To Just to sit there and is Jesus really the Son of God in a very sort of cynical way? But to remember that Jesus shall judge all will give us humility as we consider the claims of Christ as opposed to the pride, the arrogance, 
that is often found as people consider the claims of Christ. Why is it that the Father has entrusted this important task to His Son? Jesus says that the purpose was so that all men would honor the Son as they honor the Father. These men who are questioning Jesus are dishonoring Jesus. But one day they'll honor Him. Many of the parallel passages that kind of connect Him with this idea of the judgment of God all tie into that phrase that we see in Philippians 2. That every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see that in the prophets. Paul is just quoting from the prophets when he brings that up. And in every other place, it's tied with the judgment. And so they're going to glorify Jesus as who he really is, even though they have disregarded him their entire lives. They will finally know who Jesus is. Okay? We'll see what happens in a little bit with them. But the Father, because the Father loves his Son, he wants to give his Son honor and glory. And so he does this by granting him the right and the privilege to judge everybody. Isn't it great of him? The Father would not do this for any mere man, but this once again implicitly argues for Christ's divinity, which will be expressed explicitly as we go on. So the, the, father, the Son sees the Father give life and to judge nations, and now the Father is going to do it through the Son as part of his apprenticeship. Second thing, they get shorter because the first amen, amen was really long. They get shorter. Okay. The Son gives eternal life to all who believe. Jesus is circled back. He's going to add a little bit more to what he had said before. But previously he had talked about giving life to whom he will. And that points to the sovereignty of Christ in dispensing eternal life. It's not something that you can wrangle out of Jesus. It's not something that you can buy from Jesus. It's not something you can manipulate or earn out of Jesus. He gives it to whom He wills. Which should lead us to ask this question, I would imagine. How can I know if the Son has given life to me? How can I know if He's given life to someone I love? And so Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, pay attention. It's those who hear His word and believe the Father who sent Him. Okay, so wait a second. He's saying that when you believe Me, you're also believing the Father. Because the Father sent Me and gave Me these words to speak. As He said in other places, I don't speak on My own accord. I only speak what the Father tells Me. And so they're not just arguing with Jesus, they're arguing with the Father who stands behind Jesus, who has commissioned Jesus and sent Jesus. The stakes are very high in all of this. We cannot say that we 
have eternal life if we reject Jesus' words like the Jewish leaders were doing. The sign, so to speak, that we have been given that we might know we have eternal life is if we have placed our faith in Christ as the Son of God and the Savior of sinners. One aspect of this eternal life that Jesus bestows uh, to those that he wills is that they are not judged. Now, that could be a little confusing. Because Jesus has just said he's going to judge all men. But now he's saying that there's this one group that he's not going to judge. Because those have, they have already been judged in him. On his, when he was on the cross, by virtue of their union with him, they were on the cross. And so their sins are already paid for. They've already experienced this judgment. They've passed from condemnation, they've passed from death, and they've moved into life. A significant transformation and change has taken place. And this is one aspect of eternal life. We know what we are. There is no, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because Jesus was judged for them. But those who do not believe, Jesus warns, remain under the just condemnation of God. They still remain under the death sentence. They still experience spiritual death. They're still dead in their sins and trespasses. So the sign of God's sovereign grace we can observe is faith, believing Christ's word. Third, the Son resurrects all men to execute judgment. Again, remember, truly, truly, he says to us, we have to pay attention, not just to what he says, but how he says it. The verb tense matters as we try to understand this. He starts again with eternal life because he says, the time is coming and is now here. Isn't that really an odd phrase? (laughs) Is now coming, is coming and is now here. He's still, he's already able to bestow life by virtue of the fact that he knows his resurrection, his death and resurrection are sure. And so he's applying on, the, on that basis. But it's happening now. He's raising people up to life now. He puts it another way. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Okay. One, there's the explicit mention that he is the Son of God. Secondly, this confusing language, the dead will hear. Okay? How do dead things hear? Only by the sovereign grace of the Lord Jesus Christ can they hear. These are spiritually dead people that he is going to make alive. There's a show I have not watched. There are many I have not watched, but one of the ones I have not watched, which many of my friends on Facebook rave about, The Voice. They're looking for Someone who has that perfect singing voice. This is a different kind of voice. This is a voice like we read about in The Magician's Nephew. 
in the Chronicles of Narnia, where Aslan the lion goes into who knows what, and he sings. And Narnia comes into existence. What a beautiful picture that is of creation. God's delight in his creation. He's singing a beautiful song and it all comes together. Now we know from Genesis 1, God spoke and it took place. The power of his word, or another way to put it, the power of his voice. In Psalm, I want to say 29, because I'm doing this off that off the top of my head. The voice of the Lord is repeated throughout that psalm. And it talks about how the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. It's all these different ways in which he's describing the power of the voice of God. It's not just the word of God. The voice of God is powerful. That's what we see here in John 5. The dead will hear the voice of God and they will live. Which brings us to the fourth four. He says, the Father who has life in himself has granted that the Son have life in himself. The incarnate Son has the power to give life because he has life in himself. But then he circles back one more time to this idea of Jesus having the right to execute judgment as, as he says, the Son of Man, tying us back in with what we see in Daniel 7. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5, notes that, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So Jesus, as the Son of God and the Son of Man, will come with, the, with all of the angels, will set up his throne, so to speak, and bring all men before him. Jesus has moved from this age to the end of the age because he says those in tombs will hear the Son of Man's voice. And so he's shifted. He's moved to the future, out of the present. And it's not just those who are spiritually dead who will hear his voice, but at the end, those who are physically dead will also hear his voice. All of humanity will hear the voice of Christ cry out. And they will all come to life. Ezekiel 37. One, one chapter after the promise of the new covenant. God says to Ezekiel, Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And so Jesus is claiming for himself what the Lord has claimed for himself in Ezekiel 37. So if you have a Jehovah's Witness friend and they don't really understand who Jesus is and that he's not really, they think he's not God, this is one another, another thing. He takes to himself 
what is only God's right. Or he claims for himself because it has been given to him by the Father. The power to raise the dead. He's able to resurrect everyone by the power of his voice. And we know that judgment will follow. The parable of the sheep and the goats. I'm not sure my daughter likes that parable because she likes goats. And the goats don't get a good one in that one. Okay? Jesus is not really talking about goats, dear. Don't worry. Okay? But there are some who will go to life. Those who, because they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, do good. Okay, we saw this when we talked about it a couple weeks ago from Titus 2 and 3, that Jesus creates a people for himself who are zealous for good works. We see this in James chapter 2, that faith is seen by work, how it works. Their faith without works is dead. And so that's all this is saying. It doesn't say you're saved by your works. It says that those who are saved will work. And Jesus will reward. But those who do not believe, therefore will not work, well, they'll not work righteousness. They'll work wickedness. And so Jesus provides this warning to them that this unbelief means that people will continue to do evil and they will be resurrected too, but they will receive a resurrection of condemnation, of judgment. And so we see from this passage that the blessings of, he- of eternal life will have not just a spiritual quality to them, but a physical quality to them. And the wrath of God in judgment in the lake of fire will have a spiritual quality to them and a physical quality to them. That's scary. We should be wailing. Now, when you think of your problems, do they seem bigger? Or should they seem big to one who can raise the dead? Should, should your struggle with your enemies, with those who seek to oppress you, should that seem like, like a huge matter to one who can judge everybody? When we see the greatness of Jesus as exhibited in this passage, this invites us to trust. There's nothing bigger than Him. There's nothing greater than Him. There's nothing that if we're in Him, it can separate us from this Jesus. This one gives us comfort. When we hear the voice of the, of the slanderer, the accuser, coming against us in the still of the night when we can't go to sleep. This is the one who should give us comfort when we have our brain running over the 15,000 things that we think, we wish, we want to control but cannot. Because he is the one who is in control. Fear not if you're in this Jesus. This mighty Jesus that he talks about. So Jesus explains his relationship to the Father. 
Though he's equal in power and glory, the son submits himself to the father as a good son, and he follows in his footsteps. He exercises great power and authority as he gives eternal life, as he resurrects the dead, as he judges all of humanity. And this reveals to us that Jesus is both the Son of God and the last days or eschatological Son of Man from Daniel 7. He is great and mighty and worthy of our worship and obedience. He's not just a carpenter's son from down the street. Let's pray. Father, it is difficult for us to fathom the greatness of Jesus. That my mere words cannot really communicate how great He is. And yet You have given us these words of Scripture and You have given us the capacity to speak and even as our confessions teach that my speaking from this pulpit is the Word of God. Convince Your people of Jesus' greatness by the power of the Holy Spirit this morning. That when we come to the table, we do not come in fear and trembling as though the world may destroy us, but may we come in confidence knowing that He who is in us is greater than He who is in the world. And we ask this to the glory of Your Son and therefore to Your glory in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.